National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, August 16th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. We'll be looking at the People's Republic of China today, and we're going to weave together two areas of research that our guest has recently published. Uh, both uh, reports uh, are very interesting and directly relevant to our learning about current challenges with China. We are in a period of great power competition. And a better understanding of our near-peer competitors better informs us of their capabilities and intentions. Armed with that knowledge, our national security experts can plan for a wide range of diplomatic and economic policies with China, or if those peaceful efforts fail, to create deterrence measures that may be needed to convince China to remain peaceful in their foreign policy pursuits. Should deterrence fail, these studies aid our policymakers and national command authority, specifically the president, in making smart choices to defeat Chinese aggression should it come to that. Our guest today is Mark Kozad. Mark Kozad is a senior international defense researcher and professor at the Pardee Rand Graduate School. Kozad's work at Rand focuses primarily on military and security issues in Europe and East Asia, including major power competition, the development of operational concepts among major militaries, and foreign military lessons learned. He also leads long-term research efforts examining Chinese and Russian military strategy and doctrine, operational planning, and concepts of operation. Kozad's long-term research interests include military capabilities analysis, strategic warning, and deception. Mark Kozad earned a Master of Science in Strategic Intelligence at the Defense Intelligence College and a Master of Science in History at George Mason University. His undergraduate degree includes a Bachelor of Science in Political Science from the U.S. Air Force Academy. Mark Kozad, welcome to National Security This Week. Oh, we, we, we are, uh, can you hear me, Mark? Yes, I can. Oh, there we go. All right, got you on. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks for joining us today. It looks like you're uh, you're at home today, which is a, a nice break from work, the commute in D.C., I take it? Yes, yes, absolutely. I've been writing for the past couple of days on a couple of uh, new projects that we have that are about to get uh, published um, so a little bit more productive when I don't have to fight the morning commute. <laughs> yeah. So the two reports that I've asked you to come on the show to talk about today, uh, one of them is somewhere in the neighbor of 280 pages long, and the other one is about 230 pages long. So so you apparently do a lot of writing. <laughs> uh, yes, this past couple of years, I definitely have. And we have a few more on the way. So I'm 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 not shy for work. All right. So, Mark, I want to start our show today by learning a little bit more about your personal background. You're an Air Force Academy graduate. Uh, you are now at RAND, uh, one of the premier think tanks, frankly, in the United States. Can you tell us about your journey uh, through your time in the Air Force and, and how you got to RAND? Uh, sure. I was actually commissioned from the Air Force Academy in the early 90s. And when I came out of the Air Force Academy, I went into the intelligence career field. I originally, like most people who attend the academy, uh, was interested in being a pilot and found out during my um, flight physical that I was colorblind. Um, and there's really not much you can do uh, to get around that, both in the flight um, career, uh, aviation uh, fields, uh, but also with a lot of the other um, 
uh, fields that you can go into the other uh, Air Force specialty codes. So Intel really seemed to be the field that that was the best fit for me, and I was actually very interested in going there. Um, so I was really fortunate uh, over my time in the Air Force. I spent about uh, eight plus years in on active duty and then uh, briefly in the reserves. Um, I was a targeting officer and also did uh, intelligence analysis. And so one of the things that that really started me on my path towards RAND uh, was just a love of being able to do deep research. Um, I was very uh, fortunate uh, with some of the assignments that I had. I was stationed over in Italy uh, in the 1990s um, during the time of Operation Deny Flight uh, and later went back for Operation Allied Force. I spent time in Korea um, as a targeting officer where um, just a fantastic experience working with um, our South Korean counterparts in the uh, Republic of Korea Air Force but also in terms of the type of really deep work that we were able to get into looking at different planning issues and planning challenges. Um, so that really got me going on the, on the field of analysis. And then when I, uh, my last assignment before getting out, I went to the Pentagon and I was part of the National Air Intelligence Center's uh, detachment. And so while I was there, I did briefings for the Chief of Staff and Secretary of the Air Force uh, but also that's where I started working on on China issues uh, there at the air staff looking at China's Air Force. Um, at that point in my career, I was coming up to a time where I was actually um, going to move into more management positions. And I was really at that point where I was weighing whether or not I wanted to continue doing analysis or move on to that management side. And I decided for uh, the analysis track. And I left the Air Force and went into uh, the intelligence community. I was working for the Defense Intelligence Agency. I worked with them very closely uh, when I was in the Air Force, particularly in my time in Korea. And uh, while I was there, I um, had a variety of positions where I dealt with the Chinese military, um, ending up being the Defense Intelligence Officer for East Asia. And then uh, my very last assignment, I was the Deputy Director for the President's Daily Brief Staff. All right. Um, so <laughs> we managed the community inputs uh, that went into the president's daily brief and the briefing teams that went out to all of the seniors who received the briefing. And then at that point, I um, decided that uh, as a senior executive, you're again doing management. And Rand offered the opportunity for me to go back and lead research and do research. And that was something that I just really, really wanted to stay in. And so I've been at Rand for the past 10 years. And as you mentioned, I've worked on a large number of China issues, a lot of other issues um, across uh, interest in the intelligence community, Office of the Secretary of Defense, and also for our global combatant commands, particularly in Hawaii and uh, Europe. So you've been at RAND for for a decade. Let me just ask you this. Uh, what, what is RAND? Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure people have heard that name before, but they may not understand exactly what RAND is and the role it has played sure. in American national security. So RAND is a not-for-profit. Um, we do about 50% of our work is tied to national security-related issues. Uh, the other 50% is more along the lines of issues related uh, to social, economic, environmental, um, really non-government or non-security-related issues that are, that are there um, being examined uh, so that we can develop public policy. And essentially what we do is provide um, a nonpartisan, unbiased, objective analysis to policymakers to help inform their policy decisions, but also to contribute to 
the national debate. And I think that's one of the things that's really important about RAND is that we are an independent organization. We're not partisan um, and, and, and a big part of the, the service, the, the, the benefit that we provide is the fact that we don't really take sides. We rely on our analysis and in the analysis of data to really guide our positions and where we're trying to help policymakers. Yeah, that, that Rand has a, a great reputation uh, for being a nonpartisan, fact-based, uh, data-driven organization. So uh, you, you are lucky to be where you're at and keep doing the great work you are. All right, Mark, so we've got a lot to cover this morning. Uh, let's begin uh, by covering your expertise on the People's Republic of China. You covered a little bit about it, uh, you know, in your in your career uh, summary uh, while you're in the Air Force and, and at DIA. Uh, how, how long have you been a China watcher? In other words, how long you, how long have you considered yourself to be you know so f- really focused on China, especially? Well, and what was it about China that attracted your attention uh, in the intelligence uh, field, and, and perhaps even in in your history studies? I noticed you have a Master of Science in History from. Uh, George Mason University as well. Um, so it's probably been about 25 years. Um, as you know, working in the intelligence career field, there are times where you touch on multiple different issues, so it's not exclusively one or the other. And I had a, a few windows uh, where that was the case, uh, particularly when I was over in Korea and East Asia, but then also at my time um, there at the National Air Intelligence Center. But it's been about 25 years. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because... Um, I did not really consciously select uh, China as the issue that I was working on. And, and, and you're laughing, and I think that it's it's one of those telling things about the military. I had done most of my work um, on uh, European security issues, and I was very deeply immersed. I did my first master's thesis on, on Yugoslavia, and in particular Kosovo. I spent time over in Italy supporting operations in the former Yugoslavia and when I came into uh, or got to Washington, D.C. in that last assignment, I went back um, for Operation Allied Force, which was um, uh, the air war against Serbia. And so I was hoping to get into something related to that. But lo and behold, our China analyst uh, was uh, changing stations. So he was moving out of his position and they said, hey, Mark, this would be a great job for you. And to be quite frank, um, it's one of those things where you stumble into it and you're very happy that you did and you're very happy that your boss um, really didn't take into account your earlier wishes because it's just stuck ever since. And, you know, at that point, I, I got into it in the late 1990s and it was really where we were starting to develop a lot of interest um, particularly in the Department of Defense, about the direction that China was going, and particularly what it, what its military was going to look like. Um, and after Allied Force, especially, uh, it was such a watershed event for the People's Liberation Army that um, there was just a lot to uncover, um, a lot of dynamics um, that were underway, both in terms of how the PLA was trying to modernize its force as well as um, the, the different institutional changes that were going on uh, within the PLA itself. So it was really a dynamic time. And, you know, at, at that point, you get hooked and you stay working on it. Um, and so I've never really had any desire to move on. Yeah, I, I think, you you know, you've hit on a couple of things here. The first Gulf War, uh, the air, air uh, campaign against uh, Serbia, all of these things that the U.S. has been involved in have been great 
opportunities for the People's Liberation Army in China to sort of study uh, uh, how uh, the U.S. and our allies uh, operate. And we'll get into more of that now, I think, as we as we jump into these two reports. So let's let's talk about the first study that you recently published. The title of that work is Gaining Victory in Systems Warfare, China's Perspective on the U.S.-China Military Balance. Uh, so you co-authored that study. Uh, and that RAND work is some 200 and page, 280 pages in length, so it's a meaningful study of China and the balance of military power between the U.S. and the People's Republic of China. So I have a few questions on this report. The first question is, what was the catalyst for diving into this lengthy research, and uh, what did you and your authors hope to find when you embarked on the project? So the catalyst for how we started on the report um, was a series of questions we received from some seniors over in the office of the secretary of defense. And they had read some uh, recent reports that had talked about uh, the PLA and the progress that the PLA had made, um, particularly over about a five-year period. I think it was about 2013, 2018, somewhere in there. And they came back and they said, you know, it's very interesting to us because we read these reports and they, constantly talk about progress that the PLA has made, but they frequently don't talk about any progress on the U.S. side. Mm. And they said, we've been really focusing on some of these problems as well. And they came back to us and they said, if, if a PLA officer was writing this, would they have written the report the same way that we did? Would we be reading the same thing? And that was really the jumping off point, was trying to take a Chinese perspective of what the military balance looks like not only to its senior political leaders, but also to the military planners and senior officers who are making decisions within the PLA and, and, and what sort of criteria they would use, how they would evaluate those criteria, and then also how they would understand their progress. So that was really the, the, the genesis of, of the report. Okay. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Mark Kozad from the RAND Corporation, and we're discussing recent research papers he co-authored linked to China and great power competition. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Mark Kozad, let's continue our discussion uh, on China's perspective on this concept of systems warfare. So, first of all, what does the term systems warfare mean, and how is it assessed by both China and the United States, uh, or, or perhaps specifically by your, your team at RAND? Okay, um... So systems warfare is really a foundational concept for the way the PLA has thought about its military development really since about 2005, but uh, probably before that, um, because they did probably did have a period where they were weighing concepts and ideas before they actually came out and said in 2005 that this was, this was a critical part of their modernization. But it has a couple of different roots. So the Chinese... Um, their, their, their theory and doctrine is, has a lot of affinities with Russian theory and doctrine. And when you go back and you look at Soviet and Russian doctrine, systems analysis figures very heavily into their thinking about warfare, but also their thinking about society and thinking about economic structures, any number of different dynamics. Um, so the PLA borrowed some of that based off of their experience with the Soviet Union, particularly Russia, uh, through the course of the 1990s. What they also did was they looked at the United States and how we had started fighting wars beginning in the early 1990s. Uh, they, they really missed what was coming 
before um, Operation Desert Storm. Uh, they thought the U.S. was going to have a very difficult time. They thought that we had overinvested in things like air power um, in particular, and they thought that a battle-hardened military like the Iraqi military that had spent eight years in combat, in ground combat, was on familiar terrain, was going to create some significant problems for us. And what they saw was with the development of what they called informatization, and that was really a theory that gained a lot of steam after 1999, but this idea that information on the battlefield and the, and the ability to be able to collect information, analyze it, disseminate, make decisions with that information was really a critical backbone, backbone for future operations that had a huge impact on the way that they thought about warfare. And along with that, they also noticed that it wasn't um, just service-related operations, service-specific operations. There was very much a joint characteristic to it. That was important in 1991. It was absolutely critical um, when we looked at it from an air perspective in 1999. So systems warfare for the PLA really started picking up on these ideas of integrating different capabilities in a way that was much more dynamic and adaptable than what they had been used to in their old doctrine in the 1980s that was focused more on very large-scale, um, heavily centered ground combat uh, and attrition warfare. So what they saw with systems warfare was that over time, it's not about attriting as many um, particularly ground forces, but other systems as possible. It was more about trying to defeat an enemy system, trying to defeat those critical joint capabilities that were there for the fight, but also really very specifically focused on information systems, command and control, intelligence architectures that enabled that uh, development of precision warfare. So that's really where systems warfare came into the fold for the PLA. And today it's really one of the pillars uh, for how they think about modernization. We talk a little bit about this in the report, is that in 2015 in their military strategy, they outlined this idea that informatization, joint operations, and systems warfare were really the three pillars that were critical to their ability to be able to prepare for what, what they called preparing for military struggle. And that was getting the PLA up to snuff so that it'd be capable of operating against the modern military. And in particular, they've talked about the United States as sort of the benchmark for that. So so it sounds to me, if I could summarize a little bit, they, they have sure. watched U.S. military operations over the years. They've watched us transition into a true joint force where the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, uh, even today the Space Force now, uh, they're all working together. All those assets from the different services are working together effectively. Uh, the sequence of operations on the U.S. side is done uh, really seamlessly through our communications capabilities, the command and control side of these things, and that our ability to execute warfare operations is really based on the speed of information transfer, uh, that uh, sensor-to-shooter uh, process. Uh, and so we become very effective, very precision-oriented in many cases. The Chinese have watched this. They've seen the effectiveness of it, and they are mirroring it in their doctrinal development. Is that, is that a good summary? Yes, it is. And I, I think when you look at the different scenarios that they have studied so closely, they've all offered something different that gets to this point of adaptability. You looked at the military that deployed very large numbers in 1991 
You had another military that primarily relied on air power in 1999 and precision capabilities. Then you had a military that went into Afghanistan and really had no basing in the region, um, had to have some very short-term workarounds, things like um, armed UAVs in particular uh, caught their attention. But it was something in each one of those cases that showed how a system could adapt to very different conditions, very different adversaries, and very different geographic environments. And so getting back to the point that you just made, I think that's a really important part of it is that those different pieces could be composed differently um, based on the objective, based on the geographic and domain characteristics of the fights that they were about to get in. Okay. So so how does China view the balance of power between the People's Liberation Army and, and the U.S. military today? Uh, what, what implications exist for, for a China that views the United States as militarily vulnerable uh, rather than a, a nation that's so powerful that it's uh, impossible to beat, it would be foolish to take us on in a fight? Right. So I think the first part of that question, how they view the military balance, um, you could look at the report that we had written and think about it in two different time periods. So had we been asked to write that report in 2000, it would have been a completely different report with a completely different focus. One of the things we pointed out in this most recent report was that we were focused mostly on the things that they were talking about at the time, which were institutional sorts of issues. So they were about people, they were about training, they were about um, structures in the military, how the military operated. If you would have gone back to 2000, it was very much focused on these issues of hardware and systems and really building and gaining the technology and the information infrastructure that they needed really is a, is, is a, is a baseline sort of requirement uh, to be able to think about modern operations. You can have all the organizational uh, changes that you want, but if you're flying outdated aircraft with outdated missiles and lack of precision, then there are going to be limits to what you can do. So I point that out is that if we we're di in different periods, we'd be talking about something very differently. When we look at how they evaluate themselves today, they made a lot of progress and they talk about that progress largely in areas of technology. So the PLA that you see today is much more modern, has many more modern aircraft, much more capable missiles, and they're making strides on the technological front um, at, at a very rapid pace. I and mean, they have developed some world-class systems and they're continuing with those developments today. Where I think the PLA and Chinese leadership in particular gets themselves into a position where they're uncomfortable is looking at those institutional characteristics. So one of the things we highlight in the report, um, we talk a little bit about the types of things that China thinks it needs to do to fight a modern war, which are different from us. But at the same time, we also talked about some thoughts that she had that he um, mentioned in a speech in uh, 2017, not too long after the reform, the 2016 reforms that they had undergone that were massive reforms. And in that, we call it the, the three-willed aeronauts or the four-willed aeronaut speech. And basically, it highlighted his concerns about whether or not the PLA was going to um, adhere to party guidelines. So were they going to be loyal to the party? Were they going to, were the commanders going to be capable of leading in modern war? Uh, were they going to be able to fight proficiently and also mobilize? 
And when you really look at those three core areas, those really get down to the issues of institutional factors, organizational culture, and whether or not they're really able to develop the types of concepts of operation and skills that are going to allow them to take those modern weapon systems and employ them in against against a high-end adversary like the United States and many of its allies. So I think if we boil it down to that and we look at how they view the military balance today in, in a very short encapsulation, they've come a long way, they have a long way to go, and the problems that they have to fix today, I think, are very different from the technological problems that they were dealing with 20-some years ago. These institutional, organizational, cultural issues are really difficult problems to solve, particularly in the political environment, the PLA. I think if we look at the PLA in terms of what would happen if the PLA viewed itself as confronting a much weaker, less capable United States military, um, I think you'd probably see a lot more assertive, a lot more um, aggressive Chinese Communist Party. Um, what we have seen over the years as, as the PLA and, and Chinese leaders have become more confident in their capabilities, they've been much more willing to um, assert their their will uh, in different regional um, settings uh, in particular. So as you look at uh, the South China Sea, as you look at the East China Sea, those are both scenarios where if we were back in the mid-1990s, the PLA would not have the wherewithal to really do anything. And today, they have a lot of different types of capabilities and strategies for being able to deal with those situations. So one of the things that I think is so important is that if the United States doesn't maintain an advantage in this area, then it does open the door for a PLA that will be much more assertive and much more aggressive in pursuing its interest and pursuing its claims in the region. And I don't think that that works for us or any of our allies and partners. And I think that there are major political and economic implications for those uh, uh, for, for a development like that that we really need to consider when we're talking about the development of the U.S. military. It's critical in protecting that. Uh, l let me ask you about one of the drivers of uh, uh, of where the PLA is at to date, both in their reforms, uh, you know, the rapid changing of their capabilities, the way the much more aggressive behavior, uh, both in the South China Sea uh, and certainly uh, around in and around Taiwan. Uh, you spend a good portion of the report uh, sort of considering Xi Jinping and his specific influence as the leader uh, of China on the PLA's capabilities and their operational concepts, uh, all, all of these things. Could you just briefly comment on Xi's impact on, on the PLA? Uh, well, one of the things we talked about, so what's difficult in writing a report like this where you're trying to determine perceptions is whose perceptions are they and, and why do they matter? I think with Xi Jinping and the PLA right now, it's clear that Xi Jinping's perceptions matter more than anybody else's. Um, when he came in uh, to power, and in particular when he came in as chairman of the Central Military Commission, uh, he really put his imprint on the PLA. He was very dissatisfied with the direction that it was taking. And so there were multiple rounds of uh, anti-corruption uh, efforts that were underway. They actually took down some very senior um, PLA generals um, after they had retired, but, you know, very senior nonetheless. Um, and he also questioned the party or the military's loyalty to the party. And he spent a lot of time um, trying to reassert 
party control over the military. I mean, one of the things that first and foremost, the mission of the PLA um, has been and continues to be protecting the party. It is a party army. It is not a state military. It is a party army. And she wanted to make sure that that was absolutely clear to the leaders of the PLA and to the rank and file in the PLA. And so that's been a major thrust. So as we start looking at, or as we look at the development of the PLA, particularly since 2013, it is definitely um, um, she's imprint that has had the most significant impact on the PLA. Now, that doesn't mean that everything started with she. Um, things like systems warfare, for instance, that was actually something that was that was talked about by who in 2005 at, a, at a, an all-army conference that they do every year. Um, so some of these things carry on, but definitely the direction that the PLA has taken over the past 10 years is, is due to she's leadership and she's imprint. Uh, so we have to take just a short uh, commercial break uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back here at National Security This Week, and our guest is Mark Kozad from RAND. Uh, Mar Mark, I, I got one more question I want to ask you about this report. Uh, the report is titled Gaining Victory in Systems Warfare, China's Perspective on the U.S.-China Military Balance. Uh, but before I ask this last question, our, our, guest, our listeners, I'm sure, would love to read this report. It's tremendously interesting. Uh, can they get it for free from the RAND website? Where can they acquire these, uh, this report? So on the RAND website, any of the reports that we publish are um, freely downloadable to the public. I mean, part of, as I, as I mentioned, um, a big part of RAND's mission is to help inform the public debate. Um, so the reports that we publish, unless there are specific sensitivities um, that our individual sponsors um, have about the release of the report, RAND always strives to publish, and we make those freely available um, via download. Okay. So last question on this one report. Are, are there areas of analysis uh, as you look at the, the, the PLA, U.S. military balance there, areas of analysis that are particularly vexing for China as they compare themselves to the U.S. military? Uh, maybe it's in urban warfare. Uh, maybe it's combined arms. Uh, do they feel they have advantages in, say, hypersonics or cyber, uh, maybe in quantum? Or perhaps they fear the U.S. lead in something like directed energy weapons, I mean, what, what did your report sort of yield on, on those things? Um, the really vexing problem that we identified in the report is that issue of institutional change. Hmm. Um, and one of the key problems with that is that currently, as I mentioned, she has been really focused on reasserting party authority. Um, they have inspection and discipline committees now that travel around, look at issues like corruption, but also compliance. So are you doing the type of training that you're being asked to do 
um, by um, by the party. And as you look at that sort of very top level intervention into the day to day operations and the thinking within the PLA, you're also asking the PLA to pursue these operational concepts and these new modes of operation that really push initiative and responsibility down to much lower levels, which is not something that the PLA has has had experience with. It's been a very top-down driven organization. So as they're trying to implement these new operational concepts that are really the where the rubber meets the road on this systems warfare. Systems warfare is largely theoretical. The way that it's implemented is through these operational concepts. And as they're trying to pursue uh, the capabilities and the wherewithal with commanders, the decision-making abilities and those sorts of things, you also have this tension, this contradiction, if you will, uh, within what's with the type of environment that the Chinese Communist Party and Xi in particular is instilling with the PLA. And I think that that really comes in to um, really comes into focus as we start looking at some of these issues like command. Um, are PLA officers going to be able to make those types of decisions? Are they going to feel comfortable making those types of decisions, but also sharing bad news um, with their seniors? I mean, this has been a huge problem for the Russian military, and you had a very similar model in many respects uh, that, that resides with, with China. So I would say if I had to pick one particular problem, um, it would be that. It's that issue of institutional change, because in order to accomplish that, you can change the organization, you can change the technology, but in order to really accomplish significant institutional change, you have to really look at the incentives and in, 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 in what types of incentives people are being offered to make those decisions. Uh, so that actually leads me to a quick follow-up question that I want to make sure I ask before we move too, too much further on. Small unit leadership. Here in, in the United States military, we rely very, very heavily on small unit leadership and uh, an NCO corps, a, a non-commissioned officer corps of professional enlisted personnel who are experts at their job. Does the PLA uh, rely heavily on that, or is it really still a, a top-down, top-driven uh, command structure? And how influential are the political commissars at different unit levels uh, in the PLA? So it is still very much a centrally controlled organization. So it's it's very top-down. Uh, the PLA over the years has tried to develop an NCO Corps. Uh, the NCO Corps did not develop along the lines of a Western NCO Corps. What they found over time um, was that a lot of your NCOs were gravitating into non-small unit leadership type positions. So things that dealt with... Um, logistics and money and those kinds of areas because it got them out of the field essentially. Um, and so that's where you're in more, I, maybe I should say more administrative jobs would be a better way to put that. Um, and so they've really struggled on the NCO front. And part of that, again, is this issue of trust. Are you willing to delegate these responsibilities down to, or these authorities down to lower levels so that they are able to make those types of decisions? And that's just been a problem for them that they've acknowledged. And so when when she did the reorganization in 2016 that developed the theaters of operations and really tried to push planning down to a lower level, one of the things that the PLA also implemented was um, uh, command education and training, trying to train leaders to be leaders 
Um, and that has been something that I think has gone with fits and starts. They've probably made some progress. It's really hard to say based off of, of what we see. But at the same time, we do know that they continue to highlight this uh, as, a major, as a major problem. And so you also asked about the political commissars. I mean, that's absolutely a critical part of the way that the PLA does business is you have a commander and you have a political officer and decisions are made in part by committee. Um, you, you, you don't have one individual who's making all those decisions. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very important to understand that political side of, of the equation as well, because they wield a significant amount of influence, not only in areas like planning, but also in areas of personnel. Um, when we go back and we look at, at corruption prosecutions, they had plenty of corruption prosecutions, um, fairly significant numbers in the political departments. And one of the reasons why that was the case was because they controlled the promotions, um, the promotion system. And so it's it's a significant, significant uh, role that the political officers play in that decision-making process. Uh, so, Mark, we got about uh, 22 minutes left in the show today. Uh, not as much time to, to cover this second report, but I want to make sure we sort of dive into it because I think it's equally as important. Uh, the second research project you co-authored is titled Preparing for Great Power Conflict, How Experience Shapes U.S. and Chinese Military Training. Uh, so despite the title, Preparing for Conflict, uh, I suspect you're going to agree with me immediately that actual conflict with China must be a last resort. We have to avoid that at all costs because it's not going to be good for either of us. And that the tools of national power uh, should be applied by the, should be applied by the U.S. Ideally, in coordination with our allies, should be used to deter China from aggression uh, and maybe swing China back to being a more responsible member of the international community. That all all that being said. <laughs> I, I fully recognize that we are doing everything we can right now to concentrate on deterring China, and we've been doing that for decades uh, in the past and ho- probably for decades to come. But it doesn't appear to be that uh, Xi Jinping's uh, goal uh, is to be contained in any way, shape, or form. Uh, his objective is clearly uh, moving forward to becoming a more dominant nation. Uh, so that said, can you compare and contrast U.S. and Chinese experiences uh, to tell us how it impacts military training and, 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 and great power conflict where we're at today. Sure. So um, one of the reasons for the title, I, I agree um, with the point that you brought up. We, we do not argue in this report or the other one um, that we are on the verge of conflict and that we think conflict is inevitable. Um, a large reason for that title is one of the points we wanted to get across is that both militaries now see great power conflict and being able to fight a great power conflict as essential to their modernization development and their ability to deter the other. And, and, um, and by so, this, if I may just say, we're, we're talking about major conventional war. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. This is large scale conventional war. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and so when we look at the experiences, uh, th- this was another one of those uh, reports where um we were originally asked to look at recent experience, and the idea there was, in particular, how how is Iraq um, in Afghanistan affecting the way the U.S. military is trained, and are we able to break out of that mold of counterterrorism and, and counterinsurgency and begin preparing um, for a military like the Chinese? Um, and one of the things that we discovered as we were doing the report was um, there's so many layers of experience. It's not just about battlefield experience. There are ways that that experience is interpreted. 
that frequently um, is, is shaped by uh, organizational perspectives that, again, themselves are a form of experience. Um, and so when we looked at the PLA and looked at the United States, really the starting off proposition was that the PLA has largely been focused on one adversary, or primarily on one adversary, the United States, for the past roughly 30 years, but certainly for the past 20 plus years after Allied Force. And so from that standpoint, they had a certain degree of advantage because they could maintain focus. The United States, on the other hand, has been um, focused primarily on things that were not along the lines of fighting China. They were, as I mentioned, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. And so the idea there was there was a lot more change and learning that had to go on uh, within the United States than what may have had to go on in China. But when we really started dissecting things and we looked at the learning infrastructure that the United States had, I think both of them can be classified, both the United States military and the PLA can be classified as learning organizations. Um, we both have processes for how we try to understand change, how we try to develop lessons learned and implement those lessons learned into the way that we normally do business. But the United States infrastructure for doing that was so much more advanced than what the Chinese had. And we've been doing it for roughly 50 years. I mean, we talked about in the report, we talked about the training revolution that took place in the 1970s, where you had the development of Top Gun and the Fighter Weapons School and Red Flag and the National Training Center. Those are all critical pieces for how we take lessons learned. We put them into an emulative environment where the idea is we train against an adversary and hopefully we train against an adversary that's better than the actual adversary we will have to fight to make it as challenging as possible. And that way, over time, we're able to assimilate and incorporate relevant lessons learned into this process. So as units are cycling through and doing this training, they have a ready body of, 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 of training and experimentation that they can pull on. The PLA, on the other hand, is in a very different position, um, and that is they have had to watch from the sidelines and, and gain their own experience based off of observations. So it's an indirect form of experience. And they haven't been in combat really on a large scale since 1979. There were border skirmishes with Vietnam, and you've had a limited number of PLA officers who've been involved in that, PLA soldiers. Um, but the bottom line is they really haven't had that type of experience. And so one of the keys for them has been trying to develop this infrastructure that was able to identify lessons learned and then move that through concept development experimentation. And that's been a challenging process for them. They don't have a lot of, of external um, relationships that can help with that. So one of the things with Western militaries is we typically train together. And so when you're training against somebody who's not from the U.S., you're typically training against pilots or or sailors from other countries or soldiers from other countries that have, have very high levels of proficiency. And so it gives you something that you're not used to seeing, and you also are able to incorporate that in your training. The PLA has relied on the Russian military probably more than others, but it hasn't really had those relationships that have been sort of those deep collaborative relationships where it's been able to test some of these concepts. So it's been a very challenging problem for them for how they actually implement that experience. So you mentioned a number of of, uh, of things. So China hasn't been in an, uh, in a large scale conflict since seventy nine when they had the uh, the war with uh, relatively short mm -hmm. war with Vietnam. 
uh, we, it's been 20 years since the United States had a, a major maneuver operation, and that was the invasion of, of Iraq. Also, that, that was really the last time we had a major uh, air campaign that we executed. Uh, over the last 20 years, it's mostly been relatively small unit operations in the counterterrorism, counterinsurgency world. Now, we've, we, we have been training, obviously. You talked about the National Training Center at Fort Irwin. Uh, you talked about the Red Flag operations. You talked about uh, Top Gun, Navy Strike Fighter Weapons School, et cetera. Uh, so we do these things. We train in these things. But it has been a long time since the United States actually had to execute, say, division-level maneuvers on the ground forces or a major air-sea battle. Uh, and, and I think back to, you know, maybe— uh, the Falklands War, for instance, where we had a true air-sea battle engagement, and that was the Brits and the Argentines. So does America—I mean, we've, we've been at sort of in, in these combat operations almost continuously on the counterinsurgency uh, side of things. Does America have a significant edge when it comes to combat experience over the Chinese and, and certainly the, the impact of those operations on the realistic nature of our military training? Do we have a significant edge over the Chinese? Just briefly, if you could. I, I think so, and, and there's a reason why. Is when you look at the type of environments that the or that the U.S. military has been asked to go into. So even outside of large scale operations, it's a globally deployed military. We've had to communicate across the globe, move forces across the globe, do operations in many different areas. It gets to a question of adaptability, and that was one of the points that becomes very important in that report is that training, that learning infrastructure has helped the U.S. military maintain some memory of, of doing those large-scale types of operations. But at the same time, it's also helped it be adaptable. So one of the things that we brought up in the report um, was, a, was a quote that was written by um, the author of, of a book called The Storm of Steel, which was a book about World War I. And he essentially said, uh, you learn your lessons in war and they stay learned, but the tuition costs are high. So one of the points is with some of these models that we've looked at in the report, the Soviet model that are, that's very heavily conscript based, they adapt over time. It just takes a model like that a longer time to adapt. And so the question is, who's going to be able to adapt first? And that's where I would say the U.S. does have some advantages is that issue of adaptability and experience. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Mark Kozad from the RAND Corporation, and we're discussing recent research papers he co-authored linked to China and great power competition. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Mark, we're, we're, we got about 13 minutes left. Uh, the show goes way too fast. I wish we had two hours uh, on our show, but I don't think we can get that. <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about the U.S. practices, joint operations, meaning we fully integrate Navy, Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, even the Space Force into our into our training and even our actual execution of military operations. I think we've done, and you mentioned it, I think we do a fine job of also incorporating allied and even friendly nations, militaries into combined force operations. We do a lot of training in that world uh, to make sure that we can exercise forces in peacetime. Uh, effectively. So hopefully, uh, you know, as we build that trust with our allies and friends around the world, we can we can operationalize those capabilities in, in times of conflict. Uh, the Navy actually just currently carried out a very large exercise, large-scale exercise, I think they call it, 
that sequenced global operations for Navy Marine Corps forces all around the world at the same time. I mean, a huge operation. I, I hope to cover that a little bit more later this year. Does China have real competency in joint operations? I mean, we see things where the Chinese send air power, naval power, etc., out, uh, encircle Taiwan, really pressure the Taiwanese uh, military to respond. But is that being done, you know, individually by the PLA Air Force and the PLA Navy, or is it being done in a true joint sense of operational uh, capability inside the PLA? So the PLA has highlighted problems that they continue to have in, in the area of joint operations. And in particular, when we get to that operational level and looking at, at the planning that, that uh, they undergo, it's largely an Army ground force dominated organization still. Um, and it's become more so um, since the last party Congress. Um, but the bottom line, and I think the really critical point of that is that one of the areas where they want to train commanders and give commanders more experience is understanding what the other service capabilities are. So there is a great deficit in that area within the PLA. When we start looking at some of these operations, they have done joint experimentation before. So when we go back to the early 2010s and actually 10 years before that, they were looking at what they called integrated joint operations uh, in different types of scenarios. They've made some progress. Now, how much progress? It's really hard to tell based off of the sources that we use. But when you go back and you look at the things that they write for themselves based on some of these exercises, is you get the sense that when they do a lot of these joint operations, um, particularly with live forces, so we're not talking about command post exercises where they have a simulation running in the background, a more of a war game, if you will. When they're using live forces, that it's very much sort of a set piece, deconflicted type of a situation where units are told where to go, what to do, what time to be back. And it's, and it's really laid out like that. It's not any type of dynamic coordination that's going on between services or, or, um, or uh, in many cases, even branches within the same service. Um, so I, I think that it's something that they still have a very difficult time with. And especially on the information side, passing information back and forth. Um, those are really some of the things that they were trying to tackle in these different operational concepts that they've been pursuing. So I would say at this point, for the United States, it's just something that we've done. And in those different environments, we've had opportunities to really hone those skills and, and work on, you know, developing workarounds in, in different uh, joint capability areas, special operations forces, um, air warfare. Um, you know, there's been a lot of progress that's been made um, on, on the U.S. side. I think the PLA um, has really struggled with that. And they've also had limited settings where they've been able to do that um, on, on a sustaining constructive basis. Now, as I understand it, Chinese uh, military command and control, the PLA as a whole, reorganized into theater commands uh, that have a, a commanding officer for a theater and then subordinate uh, 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 forces, PLA ground forces, air forces, naval forces, if, if needed, uh, subordinated to that theater commander. Uh, so is this, is, I mean, is Xi Jinping driving this move towards mirroring a lot of what the Western militaries have done, where they have these joint command structures, much like we do, uh, with component commanders subordinated to the theater commander? Yes. Um, and, I, and I think a model for how they thought about the theaters of operations that they set up with in 2016 
was the U.S. global combatant commands. Um, and, and they saw how those were effective um, in terms of both planning, but also in the management of day-to-day operations. And they thought that that was really important uh, to be able to have that kind of capability in the PLA. And it's important to understand what came before that. So they had military regions before that. There were seven military regions that existed. Those were largely artifacts of the pre- or of the post-Civil War era where they were tools to maintain internal control. They were not divided up and given areas of responsibility based off of um, external threats, really. And when you started looking at the previous setup with how those military regions were oriented, you came to the realization pretty quickly that they weren't going to work very effectively. They, I mean, you had for Taiwan, for instance, you had two military regions that it was very hard to split up based off of their geographic setting because they cut it cut right through the area of operations that they were concerned about with Taiwan. And when you looked at some of the others, uh, they weren't really um, staffed or organized to be able to do the types of day-to-day command and control and management of the military. It was much more administrative um, with a lot of the, the actual planning taking place at the general staff department and management of the services taking place within the, the, the individual PLA services. So I think it was a huge step forward um, from an organizational standpoint. Now, from a practical standpoint, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and they are still working their way through how to make those theaters function the way that they want them to. But the idea there is to make sure that they have um, higher degrees of readiness. So, Mark, I, I'm, I've saved the toughest question for you for for almost the end of the show, and the idea behind it was we wanted to cover these two reports uh, to sort of build up to this question, and it really becomes a question of uh, of risk assessment on Xi Jinping's part, and maybe even to a certain extent uh, the kinds of actions that the United States and our allies would take that would deter this, but as you've studied the PLA and, and the People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party, what are the risk factors that they will take into account before they would make a decision to, say, invade Taiwan or make a move in the South China Sea to more aggressively uh, take control of the region rather than just, you know, warning aircraft and ships away from the islands that they've uh, taken over in the Spratleys and whatnot, or, or even— Take action in the central Central Asia uh, if they decided to do that. What, what are the th- risk factors that you see them considering uh, as the most important aspects of this before they would launch any kind of a military operation? So part of this question gets to Xi's confidence in the PLA. So as an institution, does he see the PLA as being able to provide him with the types of policy options that he hopes it could. So the full range from all the way down from from low level gray zone types of activities to those more assertive gray zone types of activities all the way up to the high end of being able to um, uh, maintain control in a collapsed North Korea or be able to invade Taiwan. So it's really a question of where he is and his views about the PLA's ability to do those different types of things. I I think he's becoming more comfortable. I mean, again, if you look at the PLA today um, and look at what it was in the mid-1990s during the first Taiwan Strait crisis, it's totally different. They have so many more options that are available, and he's been willing to use those. What I think is important, though, is 
is we've looked at the way the PLA has operated. They've always tried over the past several years to make sure that they stay below a certain threshold. And, and I think right now we're in a testing period. Mm-hmm. Um, the South China Sea was not a foregone conclusion. In part, the United States chose not to respond to what China was doing, um, largely in a military capacity, but also just more in, in general, you know, diplomatically, economically, the types of levers that we could have pulled um, perhaps to um, to have retaliated for what they were doing there. Um, but the bottom line is he's tried to keep things at a point where they don't get themselves into a confrontation, but they're still able to achieve their objectives and assert their will. Um, when we start talking about those more high-end issues like Taiwan in particular, I think that's still an open question. I'm very skeptical that he has that high level of of confidence in the PLA. Um, as, as we talk about in the report, I mean, there's so many areas um, that that they need to um, develop and, 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 you know, develop those institutional workarounds um, that I think right now there's there's a lack of confidence. What I will say in all, in, before um, I uh, stop on this one is that I think that Ukraine and his observations of Ukraine really is a big question mark that we still have. We have not seen a ton of official PLA analysis about Ukraine. I have to believe that at some levels, um, it serves as a cautionary tale for Xi in looking at the Russian military's performance and understanding the things that he saw as issues within the PLA. So I think that's an issue that we're going to have to spend some time working our way through over the next couple of years. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of lesson learned lessons learned reports start coming out of the PLA uh, and, and and Chinese think tanks on uh, on the results of Ukraine. So, Mark, uh, we're almost uh, to the end of the show. We've covered a, a great deal of ground this morning. Uh, you have been an expert on two major research projects at RAND, with more coming. Uh, what haven't I asked you about this morning that we really must discuss? Uh, are there aspects from both the report on the systems warfare and rendering for great power conflict that, that I didn't ask you about that I should have? Uh, what else do you want to talk about for our audience just in the last few minutes we have? I think two really brief points, um, and we touched on it a little bit, but I, I think it deserves a lot larger discussion, more than we can get into today, obviously, and that is deterrence and how the Chinese think about deterrence. Um, one of the things that gets lost in the shuffle is this uh, phone call that General Milley made to his counterpart back in 2020. Um, the bottom line was the PLA thought we were going to attack, so by definition, they felt that their deterrent had failed. Um, that's a potentially very dangerous and destabilizing situation. And we're actually working on a report that goes along those lines. I think also another issue along the, along those lines is uh, focused on um, what types of factors are going to change some of the fundamental perspectives that we've seen from the PLA for years. And in particular, their thoughts on nuclear weapons use. Yeah. You know, I didn't mention that in the risk factors, but we did see in Ukraine. He is very concerned about this idea of nuclear weapons in conflict, um, and he was very vocal about that with with Vladimir Putin. So I think those two areas really merit a lot um, a lot more discussion. Fair enough. Uh, we'll have to leave it there today. Mark Kozad, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. You're a professor at Rand's Pardee Graduate School. What courses are you going to be teaching this year? So what we do with the Rand Pardee School is um, I am a professor of practice. So my projects are more of a work, um, 
a work experience program for the students who go through the school. So our, our, our doctoral students actually work on active projects and frequently they will take things that they do and tie them into uh, their doctoral dissertation. So, you know, as you engage with the school, you get the designation as professor. All right. Uh, so remind our listeners again, all of the publications that Rand produces, or, or vast majority of them anyway, are available for the public to review and read, uh, available right there for download from the Rand uh, website. Is that right? Yes. Including yes. both of these two reports that you, Mark Kozad, have co-authored. Yes, they are on there. Great. Mark Kozad, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Wood Fire Notch 